I love singing. I love playing the guitar. I love music. I love helping people worship God. I love encouraging freedom in worship. But Psalm 96 isn't just about worship. It's also about mission. Verse 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Not yet. <laughs> Sorry. I said to Simon, if anything, be slow on the slides, not ahead of them, but that's fine. So a few years ago, I worked for a mission organization. And this was set up um, in Eastern Europe predominantly uh, after the fall of communism when there was a real uh, lack of Christian leadership. And I worked with an organization that um, went in and helped train leaders and help uh, local pastors plant churches. And we supported them with mission teams. So missions is also a subject that's close to my heart as well as worship. So I hope tonight that as we look at this psalm, you will see how these two subjects fit together, how they are connected and how this psalm calls us to worship and to mission. So before we go any further, I'm going to pray that God speaks to us tonight. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in every age, in every generation, your word never changes. Lord, I pray that tonight you would speak to us afresh through this psalm, just as the very day when it was written, Lord, that you would... Open our hearts and help us to see your heart uh, for missions, but also our call, our response in worship to you. We ask it in your name. Amen. So we don't know for sure who wrote Psalm 96. It may have been David. Um, it echoes a passage in Chronicles 16, 1 Chronicles 16, where David brings together a sort of a compilation of verses and passages and that like this passage in Chronicles, Psalm 96 is a call to worship. It would be spoken by the priest or the, the worship leader in the temple, which is why I said that it was very apt that Jonathan ended up reading it, because when it was written in that time, it would have been someone like Jonathan read it, or maybe Ruth, and the call to worship earlier. Psalm 96 is a call for all nations to worship the Lord as the only God and to proclaim his glory throughout the world. It anticipates the call to mission that Jesus brought for his disciples. He commissioned them in Matthew 28, sending them out to go and make disciples of all nations. Handily for us tonight, this psalm falls into three parts. Each one is a sort of a call or a command, and so we're going to spend a few moments looking at each one of those. I'm going to spend a little bit longer on the first one, so if you think I'm going on a bit, don't worry. The second two are shorter. So the first one, then, is a, a call for the whole earth to praise God's majesty, to worship, to sing, to sing a new song, which suggests that the people had something to sing about, something new to sing about, maybe a, a recent testimony of God's power, his mercy, or his goodness. And now verse 3 we have on the PowerPoint. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. And why are we to do this? Well, the answer is in the next verses. Because the Lord is great. He's greater than all the, all the gods. They are worthless idols. Next. They are bits of wood or metal, just worthless idols. It is God the Lord. He made the heavens. He is splendid and majestic. His glory and strength fill the temple where he is worshipped. 
So this first call is a call to worship, but what, what do we mean by worship? I don't have endless amounts of time tonight. It's such a huge subject, and I'd love to spend longer, but I'm just going to perhaps throw out a few thoughts for you to think about on this subject of worship. So firstly, it might sound really obvious, but worship is for God. Worship is not for us. It's not to make us feel better. Worship is for God and for his glory and the glory of his name, to tell everyone who God is and what he has done. I found this wonderful quote by Bishop William Temple who says that worship is not meant to please me, to make me feel good, to meet my criteria, my standards, my tastes. Worship is for God. I am not to be the center of worship. God is to be at the center. Worship is about bringing all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. Worship saves us from being self-centered and makes us God-centered. Of course, the amazing thing is that often when we come to God in worship and we sing especially, we sense God drawing close to us. There's many times when I've perhaps come into a meeting or a service or something and felt perhaps a bit heavy-hearted, I've got lots going on in my mind, but just the first few songs strike up and already I can feel my spirit lifting. Singing about God and his greatness tends to put our problems into perspective, doesn't it? Worship involves our whole lives. We can't separate worship into chunks. We can't say, well, this part of my life is worship, but this part isn't. God made us as whole beings. Worship has many facets. This whole service is an act of worship to God, just as much as the songs that we sang at the beginning. Taking communion together, praying, giving our time and our money, using our gifts and our skills and even our work life. These are all part of our worship to God. Worship involves action. Acts of worship in scripture are never passive. You only have to read the Psalms to see that. In Psalms, the call to worship is usually in the context of music and singing. There are more than 70 references to singing alone in the Psalms. Worship involves outward expression, clapping, lifting hands, shouting, playing instruments. Psalm 81 begins, Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike up the tambourine, play the melodious harp and lyre. I think you get the gist. Worship involves our emotions. All relationships involve emotions, don't they? If you're married, you don't just love your partner with your mind, you love them with your whole being, your mind, your heart, your will, your actions. And we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, Next, please. Thank you. With all our strength, this verse from Luke 10, which echoes Deuteronomy. We are called to worship God with every fiber of our being. I love that second song that we sang tonight, Shout to the Lord. That whole song just seems to encapsulate what worship is. Our worship should be passionate and exuberant as adoration and amazement bubbles over into action. You think of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with that very expensive perfume. 
What an extravagant display of worship. We express our emotions in other contexts, don't you? Many of you know that I'm a big football fan, and you only have to look at the way some people behave at football matches, even myself maybe, or, or music concerts or something like that. And maybe if you can't identify with either of those pictures, you can think of something where people get excited and passionate. Why should it not be any different in our worship to God? We're going to leave Psalm 96 for a moment and look at a passage in the New Testament. It's not on the, uh, the, uh, the PowerPoint and it's because it's quite a long chapter. So if you want to read it later, it's Acts chapter 16. And this is where we see worship in action, worship with flesh and bones, worship at the, the, the sort of thin end of the wedge, so to speak. The great thing about this passage is it also um, talks about mission as well. So in Acts 16, we find Paul and Silas on mission in Philippi. You may be familiar with the chapter. Um, They end up being thrown into prison. Paul confronts a woman who has an evil spirit and commands it to leave, setting her free. But the men who sort of own this woman, who are using her for their own financial gain, they're really angry about this, as you can imagine, because it, it robs them of their livelihood. And they take Paul and Silas before the magistrate, and he has them beaten chained up in prison like common criminals. Now, put yourself in Paul and Silas's shoes for a moment. You've been falsely accused. You've been beaten. You're bruised. You're bleeding. And now you're chained up in a prison cell. How do you feel? I'm not sure, if it was me, that I would want to pick my guitar up and start singing something like Shout to the Lord. Being honest. But that is exactly what we find Paul and Silas doing. Verse 25 says, At midnight they were in prison praying and singing hymns to God. Maybe they were singing Psalm 96. We don't know. We don't know what they were singing. But how incredible that they started praying and singing. And this also emphasizes that worship is also about sacrifice. In the Old Testament, sacrifice was animals, uh, grain, money, something tangible. And these things were brought before God as an act of worship or an act of repentance. In the psalm that we are looking at tonight, verse 8 says, bring an offering and come into his courts. But Praise God, his death, Christ's death on the cross, removed the need for this kind of sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 10 says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. But rather than make that easier for us, actually that makes it a little harder because we are called to bring a different kind of sacrifice, not animals, not grain, but our whole lives. You may be familiar with this passage in Romans 12. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The Message Bible says, Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Paul wrote these words, and he certainly lived them out, didn't he? His response to this horrific situation in prison was to worship, 
to pray and to sing, to give glory to God. You see, Paul understood that worship is not just about how we feel. It's about who God is. Our feelings change depending on our circumstances. But God never changes. His grace and mercy and love and forgiveness are constant. Two more. Worship is also powerful. We draw close to God in worship. We bring our whole lives. And in that place, God meets us and gives us the strength we need. Um, a few years ago, my dad passed away, and it was a very difficult time for us. Um, it was sudden. It wasn't expected. And a few months later, I was out walking one afternoon. It was raining, but I needed a walk. I needed to get out of the house. And I don't mind walking in the rain as long as I've got a coat on. And I was listening to some music on my headphones, and it was a song about God's presence. It's called You'll Come. You may be familiar with it. And suddenly these words just hit me. Spirit, rain, flood into our thirsty hearts again. Chains be broken. Lives be healed. Eyes be opened. Christ is revealed. I hadn't realized how empty and drained I was. How spiritually and emotionally drained. But as I began to sing those words, it was literally like batteries inside me being filled up. It was incredible. Flooding my thirsty heart, bringing healing. And maybe you feel like that tonight. Maybe you feel empty spiritually and emotionally. And you feel that singing and lifting your hands in worship is very difficult. So I would encourage you tonight to, to bring yourself as a sacrifice. And to take a step of faith and do that. And see God um, fill you. We had a word before the service that, that that was particularly relevant. So my heart leapt for joy when I heard that because I knew I was going to be sharing this example. So be encouraged in, in that tonight, that as we worship God, he fills us and pours his spirit out in us afresh. Worship is also a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. If you're familiar with a couple of passages in the Old Testament where Joshua and the people of Israel walked around the, the walls of Jericho seven times, blowing trumpets. On the seventh day, when the trumpet sounded and the people shouted, the walls came down. That must have been an incredible sight. Or 2 Chronicles 20, when the king, Jehoshaphat, goes into battle, he sends the worship team in first, in front of the army. I'm not sure I would be too keen on that, but what an incredible stand. Or our passage in Acts tonight, where Paul and Silas are worshipping in prison and suddenly there's a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison are shaken. The doors fly open, their chains fall off. Worship is a powerful weapon. Before we move on, just a, a word of caution, because this doesn't mean that we can use worship as sort of an instrument, a tool to twist God's arm. That if we just worship enough or sing loud enough or even sing the right songs, then God will do what we want. This completely misses the point of worship, which is what I said at the beginning, that worship is for God. And so we come to the second call. And the second call is a call for the nations to recognize the Lord's reign. Verse 10 of our psalm says, Tell the nations the Lord reigns. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. He will judge all peoples fairly. This is a call to missions, the glory of God among the nations. 
Uh, the other week, I was, oh, sorry, the other day, I was listening to uh, Carolyn speaking on Psalm 67 on the podcast. I was amazed when she, she used this very quote that I am now going to quote again from John Piper. But it fits with Psalm 67 and it certainly fits with Psalm 96. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And as Carolyn pointed out as well, it's amazing when you read the Psalms how mission-focused they are. In fact, the whole Bible declares the glory of God at the root of mission. Mission and worship have the same goal, to make known the glory of God everywhere, across the whole world. That God's name is known and that he is worshipped. Verse 7 talks about families of nations, all people groups, all cultures, all classes, everyone, everywhere. So how do we respond to this call to mission? Well, we can pray. We can pray for our missionaries. We can pray for those in full-time mission. We can support them financially. You could go on a short-term mission trip. I highly recommend it. It absolutely changed my life, so I do recommend it. But all around us is our mission field as well, our friends, our family, our neighbours, our work colleagues. They all need to hear this good news, the glory of God's grace. I know some people find this easier than others. I am in the second category. I don't find it easy. But I pray for God to give me opportunities and that I would have the courage and boldness uh, to speak when he does. And I've had a couple of amazing opportunities at work recently to share with a, a colleague who's now moved on to another job. So I'm praying that God sends someone else uh, on her case. But I had the privilege to, to chat with her and to pray with her. I've never prayed with anyone at work before. It absolutely blew me away. But just, just by taking a small step of faith, I saw how God just came into that situation. So be encouraged. And be encouraged by the words of St. Patrick. I love this. He says, we are a letter of Christ for salvation, even to the back of beyond. And what does it matter if it's not a learned letter? For it is still to be found valid and plain for all to read, written in your hearts, not in ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Maybe you feel that you're not a very learned letter. I know sometimes I do. But our testimony is still valid and plain for all to read. Before we move on and look at the final part, let's just go back to Paul and Silas in prison. We don't want to leave them there. If you remember, there's a violent earthquake. The, the doors fly open, chains fall off. And in that moment of panic, the jailer just absolutely panics. He's so frightened of what's going to happen to him that he thinks it must be, it must be easier just to kill himself. Paul stops him in that moment. And his response, the jailer's response, is incredible because not only does he take Paul and Silas out the prison, he takes them to his home, he bandages up their wounds, he gives them a good meal. But then he says, what must I do to be saved? This dramatic miracle and the witness of Paul and Silas leads to the salvation and baptism of this man and his whole family that night. What a night. Through this miracle and through their witness, God is glorified. They're able to tell the jailer and his family about Jesus. 
And it strikes me interesting as well, in verse 25, it says that as they're praying and singing, the other prisoners are listening to them. We can only imagine the impact it had on them as well. And in that sense, their worship paved the way for mission. The third and final call the psalmist makes is for all creation to rejoice. Verse 11, this is in the message, hopefully. Let's hear it from the sky with earth joining in. A huge round of applause from the sea. Let wilderness turn cartwheels. Animals come, dance. Put every tree of the forest in the choir. If you're an imaginative sort of person, that verse like that is just going to blow your mind. What an incredible picture of worship. This sort of image or personification is very common in the Psalms where human actions are attributed to creation. But why is the psalmist calling on creation to rejoice? In the Old Testament, God's rule over creation and his rule over humanity are often spoken of as one breath, one thing. Both established by God as aspects of his one kingdom and both upheld by his one rule. Verse 10 says that the world or creation is firmly established. It cannot be moved. And since we know that creation is secure in God's goodness, we see that in Genesis, it follows that God's rule over humanity is also good. It is also righteous and faithful. God's kingdom is one kingdom and all creation has cause to rejoice and flourish when the Lord comes to judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. Psalm 96 was probably written about a thousand years before Christ's first coming. But there's a prophetic tone in these uh, verses. They look ahead to Christ's first coming, to God's kingdom reign here on earth. We live in these days between Christ's first and second coming. And through his life and his death and resurrection, we can now live in right relationship with God. Our sins have been forgiven And Christ lives in us through his spirit. But Psalm 96 also looks ahead to Christ's second coming. As I'm sure you well know, this world is far from perfect. Sin and suffering in its many forms still exist. The world is not as it should be. In Romans 8, Paul talks about creation, again, sort of putting a a human aspect on it. Talks about creation waiting frustrated, groaning as it looks ahead to the day when it will be liberated um, into freedom and glory. And Paul talks about humanity too, how we groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, a foretaste of future glory. We long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Like creation, we wait in eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children including the new bodies he has promised us. I can't wait to get my new body. No more arthritis, no more hip replacements, and I'm sure there's plenty here that can identify with that. We live in this era between Christ's first and second coming. We have a taster of what kingdom life will be like. We experience that sometimes in worship, a glimpse of what is to come, that liberation, that freedom. But it will only be complete when Christ comes again. 
So as I draw to a close this evening, weaving through this psalm, we see these two key themes, worship and mission. The psalmist calls on the whole earth to praise God's majesty, to worship. For the nations to recognize the Lord's reign, to declare the Lord's rule and reign in the whole earth, to missions. And for all nature to rejoice in God's justice and faithfulness. Ultimately, the complete fulfillment of this will only happen when Christ comes again. That quote I read from John Piper earlier, he goes on to say, When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Earlier, I mentioned the two commandments that Jesus gave to his followers, and I'm going to close on those as well, because these echo the theme of Psalm 96, the call to worship and missions. From Luke, uh, Luke chapter 10, the last slide, please. Thank you. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, with every fiber of your being. To glorify God through worship here in church, in our times of worship together, but also in our whole lives, our everyday, ordinary lives, our sleeping, our eating, our going to work, our going to college, whatever we do, walking around lives, to place these before God as our sacrifice, as our offering, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. A call to missions that until Christ returns, we declare God's glory and grace to all peoples everywhere, from the nations across the world to our friends and our family and our neighbors. Amen.